My guest today is Noah Labhart. Noah is the CTO and co-founder of Variable and the founder and CEO of TouchTap, a digital solution studio. A tech veteran himself, he is intimately familiar with the challenges, risks, and rewards of introducing new tech into the world. Noah is also the host of Code Story, a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating world-changing, disruptive digital products. Noah, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, me too. It's uh, it seems like you've got a lot of stuff going on in your world. Lots of lots of tech stuff. Uh, lots of things that are near and dear to my heart. Things like podcasting as well. And uh, I'd love to get into all of those things. Maybe though, give us an idea of uh, of these different things that you're into, like variable, like touch tap, and uh, your podcast code story as well. How did you how did you kind of arrive at at those as things to do in your life, and what are they all about? Sure. Great question. Well, excited to be here. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I've had an interesting journey through corporate America um, into entrepreneurship. So I did corporate America for eight years and got the itch, have, a, have had a lot of family members do their own business thing. So jumped out and started TouchTap in um, April of 2015. Um, started out as just me and grew it to, you know, a handful of, I would say a handful, 10 to 15 contractors at any point working on projects. Uh, we were sort of project-based agency, mobile development primarily, um, but, but startup platforms. So I learned how to build that MVP, you know, that, um, <laughs> that elusive MVP. So uh, did that for three years or so and got the itch to do the next thing, which was do my own startup. Um, and didn't, didn't know what I want to do. Uh, back then, I'm a little bit different now, but back then I was, wasn't really the idea guy. I was the, I was the executor. I was the tech executor. I could build it could take your your specs attached to your vision and go build it for you. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting. <clears throat> got to where I wanted to go do my own thing and um, got introduced to my current partner, Mike Kinder, through a longtime friend of mine uh, and college roommate, Ryland Barnes. And we um, we got hooked up uh, in, a, in my prior corporate America life, we'll call it, uh, supported manufacturing for a long time. And the idea of a variable, um, which is what Mike and I co-founded, is uh, it's an on-demand marketplace for manufacturing labor. Uh, and the idea originated with Mike, uh, my partner, and he pitched it to me and having supported manufacturing, even worked on the shop floor when I was in college, um, packaging insulation, I couldn't shoot holes in it. I heard, you know, I had heard startup idea after startup idea, built a lot of startup ideas where I was like, yeah, I will totally build this for you. I don't believe in it, but I will build <laughs> it for you. Um, and could not shoot holes in it. So I was like, this is going to work. So that was a few years ago. We launched our first product in February of 2017. And uh, now we're in oh, 10 states. We're expanding into the Midwest. Uh, our team is, is 70, between 70 and 80 people. Um, and so we're growing pretty fast. Uh, so that's that's been really great. Variable is awesome. I have a tech team of 12 engineers that um, are doing amazing work here. Uh, and then on the podcast side, uh, had some friends that started a podcast. I'm a podcast junkie. Myself was heavily influenced by um, how I built this with Guy Ross. Uh, love the way he approaches storytelling, narration, and bringing out the real tense points in a story. He's really good at that. Um, and I wanted that for tech, but couldn't find it. Um, and, and not that I couldn't find good tech podcasts. There's a lot of really good tech podcasts, but I couldn't find one that was, um, you know, centered around narration, centered around a music bed, centered around pulling out tension and a human story. And I uh, mm -hmm. wanted that for tech. So I decided to jump out and do it myself. That's awesome. That's really cool. And so your podcast, it would be, uh, 
I often think of podcasts as two different, they come in two, two different varieties. I'm sure there are many more, but for me, it's like there's the interview based ones like we're doing right here. And then there's also the more produced uh, variety. So your podcast would be, like you said, on a music bed with kind of a production associated with it. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's that's the idea. It's inter- It's an interesting hybrid of what you just said, because it is an interview. It's mm-hmm. It's sort of baked around the same sort of sets of questions and i may dive into a topic here and there but it's based around the same idea of building an mvp from nothing Mm -hmm. um and then scaling that to something really big uh what i do is though i I take that interview and then i put it to music um i put it to music i add in some introductory narration i do some narration throughout the interview um and that's becoming more and more so i'm actually still working on building that part of it out but the music part of it is supposed to create tension in the story you know like when we talk about mistakes it's going to feel like you know Mm. the cinematic mistake music you know or it's when we talk about scaling it's going to sound a little electronic because it's you know i'm thinking about that sort of generates you know kind of a devops feel or like a um you know like bits and bytes replicating things and things like that so putting it to a music bed and creating a bit of more of an audio experience that's really cool. So um, what I often like to get into with my guests is like, uh, what would you recommend to people if they're wanting to do similar things to what you have done? And so one of these things that that you've done is you've gone out and started a podcast. Uh, I've talked to many of my listeners who have said they want to do their own podcast. They want to um, do something that's maybe an interview show or maybe just explores, uh, explores some topic in maybe a, a narration fashion. Uh, what would be your advice uh, to people if they want to to go start a podcast is there any kind of like first thing they should do before even thinking about it or any first steps they should take mm, that's a that's a great question and i don't know that i've had to answer it but i've got some thoughts um i, I think that people should uh, i think this is for startups and podcasts in general this is my general um take on most things like this is there's so many resources for free out there now that you can just jump in and start using um so i so the first thing i would say is just do it just do it and pr- you know, don't produce it, but produce the content, mm-hmm. uh, record an episode, get in there and record it. it the first time you do it, you're not going to like it. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to ever be the way you have it in your head until you do a bunch of reps and a bunch of iteration. Um, so get out there and do it. And, and I would say, you know, um, start small, smart, start unconstrained. You know, uh, if, if you want to start a podcast and you're really excited about a topic, just use your phone. You know, download Anchor um, and and use your phone and, and record some episodes and kind of get into the feel of what that feels like to release content on a regular basis um, and what it feels like to talk into a microphone um, or into your phone. Um, just so just start and kind of get out there and see what people think of your of your content. Um, that's what I would say. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's that's wise. Start small. Don't. Uh, don't I, I often see I see this more with people maybe who are getting into like streaming. Um, so like live streaming their their coding or, or whatnot. And what I see quite often before they even get started with like a Twitch channel is uh, going straight into like what gear should I get? Like what's the resolution of a digital SLR camera I should put above my computer uh, monitor? What what should I get for mics and stuff like that? So I like your idea. Like start without 
having a super big investment, right? Because you want to see if you even like it uh, before before you get going too too far along. Um, so that's really cool. Right. Let's let's talk now about um, variable. I'm really curious about this because you've got uh, what sounds like an awesome product that is. Uh, you said you're expanding. You're in ten states. You've got a a, a fairly large uh, dev team. It sounds like. Um, talk to me about kind of the the process of going from the idea that you were you were talking with your friend about to to getting to where you are now where you've got this product that's that's uh, sounds like it's doing really well um was it like a long time to build up the product to a state where you could sell it or did uh, did that happen in a matter of weeks like what was the what was the uh, groundwork that you did there Sure. Good, good question. Uh, you know, we started out doing this, uh, on the side, like, um, a, alongside our full-time gig. So I was doing touch depth full-time. Mike was actually a, a strategic director of operations at PricewaterhouseCoopers. So he was, he was flying to different sites as a consultant doing work, um, for them. So we were doing this on the side. Um, and we took, I think we took a uh, three months to build out a prototype essentially to just to sort of prove the model to ourselves. We weren't even, not nothing that could be released, but prove it, prove it to ourselves. And then we decided, okay, we need to go get some, some funds, um, to sort of seed this early development. Um, it took a few more months to finish out the pilot. Uh, and that's what we launched in February, 2017. Um, I think it was February 13th, 2017. We processed our first op, um, the the people showed up to work the guy hit pay and <laughs> funny enough it broke <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah right on the first day yeah. yeah totally the first one and i had to fix it live on site um mm-hmm. at the guys uh the guys 3pl warehouse um but we learned a lot through that process uh so we built that pilot and basically what that initial product would do would connect would just connect workers and businesses Yep. There was a kind of a, a pool of workers to look at, and there was businesses that could go in there and sort of invite them to work. And that, that was basically it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, we've built it into this operational tool that helps you think through your labor intelligence, um, not only from you know our model, from an on-demand labor standpoint, but also a full-time labor, a staffing labor, and how you should think about those three things. Um, and we've also introduced different types of technology around uh, private labor pools, call them private, call them your favorites. It's a good way to mm. think of it. Um, your favorite workers that you've worked with before. It's not necessarily your private labor pool. They're accessible to the whole, um, world. But if you want to post to those specific people, that's where, where your labor pool, your favorites come in. Um, so getting it to that point though, has been the last couple of years, mm. um, that we've, that we've really grown it, um, built it to a point where it's scalable, we're just starting to get into the point where we are um, looking at microservices and starting to implement, you know, more infrastructure intensive things behind the scenes so that we can support our scale. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of that's kind of the process we've gone through. The first initial prototype was three to six months. Uh, first initial pilot was three to six months. The first mm-hmm. prototype to prove that it was a real thing was a few months. Gotcha. So that it always strikes me that like the. Uh, the point at which you're ready to offer it for sale and and like hope that somebody's gonna want to use it and pay for it. That's always like a it seems dicey, right? Like it's it seems like a, a nerve wracking experience. Um, you know, building this thing, even if it's a side project, kind of in the works, getting it to the point where you're gonna make a decision based on on the feedback you get from a customer, um, has got to be a little bit nerve wracking. Um, 
and of course you had the experience where you had to you had to sort of fix it on site in in your case uh how what would you recommend for people who are doing something like this they're building it uh, something as a side project and they need to go out and they need to like try to sell it or get somebody to use it what's a good way to like get that first customer and maybe you could even draw from your your own experience with like the first handful of customers you had yeah sure so you know it's it's an interesting process getting that first customer especially with the marketplace so and that's what we are we're a marketplace and we're two-sided so -hmm. we have to sort of cater to two different types of people right we have to cater to workers right um you know people that are wanting to look for the work wanting to look for the work opportunity um and then as well cater to the businesses so we're, we're sort of building two different types of tools what we chose the how the the way that we chose to go out and do this was to um was to build the operator app first and then start to advertise it to the operators, um, which is the worker side of the platform first. So we started to get a bunch of supply essentially on the on the platform. And then we started to approach businesses, the demand side, um, and approach them in such a way that, okay, hey, we have all these workers queued up, ready to go here mm-hmm. in DFW, which is where we're, that's kind of where our, our mothership is. Um, we have all these workers on here ready to go, ready to get to work, you know, sign up and, and start posting your work so they can show up and, and do work for you. Um, so getting that, but getting that first sale or that first customer is always interesting. Um, you want to look for someone who's thinking a little bit, um, uh, more progressive than most people mm-hmm. I would say, like they're ready to take a chance. Right. right. Um, and, and you gotta be willing to also, you know, if, if you have pricing in mind, if you have things in mind that you want to charge, you have to be willing to, you know, um, give a little bit on that or a lot to get that first customer, um, right. to get those people on the platform. You know, what can you offer them as a long-term partner and say, Hey, come join us on this journey, um, mm-hmm. and help us build out this product the, the best way possible. Um, and, and then the second thing I would say is, is you got to work for every download. You got to work for every mm. user, right? Um, you know, it's interesting. I haven't found a formula that I also haven't built a lot of just kind of consumer facing apps, but I haven't found a formula that works where you can just hit a button and all of a sudden all these people show up, right? right? <laughs> got to work for everyone that, that that's right. applied for my agency work that's applied for variable and operators and businesses. And it's by, uh, applied to the podcast too. podcast yeah. downloads. I've got to work for every download. Um, and I think that's just the way it sort of works. I, I keep looking for that magic button, but there's, I haven't found it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. It's interesting because you think like I'm tempted to think this way quite often is like, well, the internet is such a big place and you know, you're connected with the whole world. Uh, you're going to be able to find some way to just like have people flock to whatever you're building. Um, but even at this massive scale that we can, communicate with you know every other human on the planet it, it doesn't happen you you've got to work for those things it sounds like that's your experience here absolutely yeah to- totally stand behind that yeah okay so very cool so um you know one thing that i'm uh, curious about hearing your opinion on uh this is something that i've talked to a lot of my listeners about they are quite often folks who are working a, a day job and so you were in corporate america um they are looking for a way to get to a, a a point where they've got some kind of business that supports themselves so they can make their way out of, of corporate America. So um, tell me about your kind of approach to that. And I, what I'm wondering about is like, was it a strategic kind of thing that you were doing when you were still doing the corporate gig to find a way to make your way out? Or was it like on a whim, you're like, I'm going to jump ship and go do my own thing. How did you sort of ideate about that back uh, back when you did? 
Sure. That's a great question. My, my wife and I were pretty strategic. Um, we had a young family when I left corporate America and, you know, I was, I was well taken care of in corporate America, right? Which means my family was well taken care of. And to the idea of jumping ship and leaving the benefits package, so to speak, was, was impactful, not only to me, but to my, to my family. Um, and my wife was so supportive, um, Hmm. you know, saw me coming home and was just not really enjoying what I was doing, not seeing the difference I was making. So she was very supportive of the idea, but we also wanted to be, you know, calculated with the risk that we were taking. So, you know, we, we made sure and put money aside. We made sure and, you know, think about, you know, okay, this is the runway that, you know, if, if everything just goes, you know, terribly, then (laughs) this is where we will survive. Right. Um, and so, so we were strategic with that. Um, and you know, I, when I left corporate America to start TouchTap, you know, I was, I had been doing software development for on the side for the whole time I was in corporate America. Mm-hmm. And before that I did software development, did .NET development as a consultant and a bunch of, a bunch of things like that. So jumping from corporate America into software development was something I knew how to do, right. um, as far as building the software. Uh, didn't know how to be an entrepreneur <laughs> and I got some stories around that too, but, um, but yeah, I knew how to code. And so that was a bit strategic in the sense that I was, you know, jumping out to something that I knew how to do. I wasn't jumping out to become a basket weaver or go, right. you know, sell insurance or things like that. I don't know anything about that stuff, but coding and software, I know how to do that. And I know how to deliver results. Hmm. Uh, and so that was a bit strategic in, in saying like, okay, I'm going to go do this, um, in an, in an agency form. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So what's like, what was your sort of, uh, lead time sort of going from, okay, I'd like to make a break for it to actually exiting your, your corporate gig. Was there like a, a long period of time? Was it short? Sure. It, I would say it was pretty, it was pretty short. It was pretty aggressive. Um, where I actually decided, I think we were talking about it for about a year before I actually left. Um, we were, but just talking, ideating, you know, we weren't like, we're going to do this, you know? And I I wasn't like, honey, I gotta, I gotta go, you know? Yeah. I was like, man, I'm feeling this and I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm kind of just keeping an eye. I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. I'm really enjoying, you know, doing software on the side. I I just got into Mac and started building mobile apps and I was like, this is really fun. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, but then, probably about six months. Um, it was, uh, well, I'd say it was four, four months. It was probably, it was January of 2015 when I finally was like, okay, you know, maybe it was new new year's resolution. I actually don't remember that. Um, but, but maybe that was a bit of a spark there and, and decided, Hey, you know, we both decided, Hey, let's do this. You know, let's give it a shot. You know, we, we only live once. Let's give it a, give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go get a job, you know? Yeah. Um, And, and so we took the next four months to be really strategic with our finances and, and, and sock money away where we could, and then, um, made the jump. Awesome. That's really cool. So you, you mentioned there that you've got some stories about jumping into entrepreneurship <laughs> and, uh, that's really interesting because I think we've, many of us have this, this grand vision for what it would be like jumping into an entrepreneurial venture. And I think for most people, it usually takes a shape that's different from what we initially think it would be. So I wonder what your kind of lessons learned were there or things that you ran into. Uh, maybe just tell, tell me some stories about what you, uh, what you encountered uh, going into entrepreneurship and what you took from it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I jumped out and um, thought I knew everything about everything. Um, you know, I was like, okay, I know how to write software. So this entrepreneur thing is going to be a piece of cake, right? Right. Um, no problem. I've, I've run big projects in, in corporate world. I know how to, 
you know, wrangle people, lead people. It's going to be fine. So I took on um, my first project was a fully remote project. The client was in Connecticut, and I'm, I'm based in Texas. And, um, and it was for a salon, so someone that, that uh, was not really familiar with technology and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, how, what it takes to kind of build it. And I wasn't educating at all. I wasn't educating the client at all um, on, on how that worked. I was also underbidding because I didn't know how to bid. Right. <laughs> I didn't, didn't ever have to do that. So I was underbidding the project, and I did underbid the project. Took on, you know, three or four developers into the project. Uh, ended up running out of money. Um, okay. very quickly and had to go back to the client and be like, look, I've lost control of this project. I can't deliver. Um, and you know, through some legal conversations, we'll, we'll, we'll quote them as, <laughs> um, I decided to give all of her money back. Okay. Like, basically like, so the first project out of the gate out of corporate America was a total failure oh, where man. it just ate up my savings, you know, cause I, I paid the developers. They did the work that, that I mm-hmm. told them to do. Um, and you know it wasn't their fault that i lost control of the project so gave her the money back um and that was a big hit and big like what am i doing you know right. like what what in the world um and again all all kudos to my wife she you know picked me up in the when i was crying in the corner and uh picked me up off the ground and said you know you you it's going to be fine this is part of the journey you got to learn from this and you got to figure out what to do next and and so you know that next day after all that kind of well, that kind of settled. It was actually a, a couple of weeks process, but after it all kind of settled, I was like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. What do I know? Yeah. I know how to, I know how to write software. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. TouchTap is going to be me and mm. I'm, I'm going to go be the developer and I'm going to take on projects and I'm just going to do that. And I'm going to, yep. I'm going to learn. I'm going to, I'm going to make money right now, first off, you know, cause we have to eat and I'm going to make money, um, feed my family. And then we're going to see where it goes. And so I did that. And had some successes. Did a project, brought on, took on another project, had some successes, got overloaded with work. I was like, okay, I'm at the point where I can take on some more work. I can pay someone part-time to help me. Um, you know, had some successes there. And I had to bring that person on full-time and so on and so on. So I just took steps. And every step of the mm-hmm. way, we grew and grew and grew. But until we mastered that next step, we weren't trying to out... We basically weren't trying to outpun our coverage, yeah. you know, so to, so to speak. So... Um, my big learning, and I still take this away, t- t- I, this takeaway still applies today and how I approach things. And, and sometimes I get caught in my old way of thinking of just trying to bite, bite off the, you know, chew on the whole elephant or whatever <laughs> the term is, right? Um, take one bite at a time of the elephant. Um, I, to this day, I still try to take one step at a time. You know, what, what do we need to do now in the short term? And what is the vision for the long term? Um, you know, we're going to take steps towards that long-term vision and that long-term vision might shift here and there. Um, but as long as we're taking steps towards it, we're going to be able to look solely at those steps while keeping that vision in the future, but solely at those steps and master them. And that's how we're going to grow. Um, and that's paid off. Um, that's paid off in a a lot of different areas. That's really cool. So what, what in particular about that first project was it that set it up? not to be successful was it that you had hired out the development work do you think or was it like was it just like not uh correctly sizing the project at the outset or was it something else what caused that yeah i think it was not sizing it um yeah you know and 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 underbidding it you know i think that there's a there's a a phrase or a um a slogan that i saw a friend of mine posted on social media a long time ago i don't even remember where where i saw it but it's basically like work for full price or work for free don't work in between 
Hmm. And, and I think in the beginning I was working in between a lot and it created a lot of tension. Um, not knowing what, you know, not valuing the work I was bringing to the table. So I underbid that project for sure. Um, didn't have the experience. And then I, you know, I undersized what was being asked for, you know, in wanting to make sure that I had a client that said yes Hmm. in the, to, to my project. Um, I made it fit to whatever they were looking for, which just isn't, isn't good for anybody. It's not the project's going, not, not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think underbidding it and undersizing it and, and just not really understanding what was really needed there. And some of that, some of that comes with experience. Some of it comes with, you know, uh, humility as well mm-hmm. <laughs> that yep. I, I, I kind of launched out thinking I, I knew everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's. Uh, I had some of those similar lessons. I, I learned some of those lessons similarly in, in my journey. Back in 2017 is when I went out uh, on my own for the first time doing uh, client work as you know my sole means of support. And um, I had a, a large project to kick that off, um, but it turned out that I scoped it uh, incorrectly. I undersized it uh, from the get-go. I was very fortunate, though, for a couple of reasons. I think one was that... I was the only developer on the project, which was good and bad because it was it meant that I had a lot of work to do. Um, but it was uh, you know, so that that was kind of the bad part of it. It was good though because I didn't have to worry about paying anybody if uh, I was not going to be bringing in as much uh, as much from the project as as I would have needed to. But I was very lucky that in that the client was like. Um, super amenable to me saying, okay, I didn't really scope this correctly. Um, is there anything we can do? They actually, they came out after, you know, we were halfway through and we were supposed to be finished. And they said, it looks like this was more work than we anticipated. We're going to pay you more basically to, to finish it out. So probably the luckiest that you can get in that scenario. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend anyone trying to count on that sort of <laughs> setup, but, <laughs> but it, it, it worked, it definitely worked out and I'm, I'm glad it did because who knows, you know, I may, it may have been dismayed uh, if, it, if it had gone another way, but, but thankfully it, it worked out. Um, I wonder about, cause so client work is one thing, building a product of course is a whole other um, kettle of fish. So what, um, what are some of the entrepreneurial kind of lessons that you'd say you, you've learned uh, building a variable? Um, maybe, maybe that are a bit different from what you would find in the client and the kind of services world. Yeah, no, it's a very different thing building a product. And that was part of what was attracting to me to doing my own thing too, was stopping the client work, stopping the project work and focusing on a sole product. And it's a very different mindset um, what the biggest takeaway for me for building a product is, is building the right team. Um, you know, I, I can go in and code all day and, and build things and connect the dots and make them work. Right. Yeah. Um, but if the product is going to, you know, if the company and the product is going to scale correctly, I need the right people at the helm and it needs to not be me. Um, I can't direct the ship if I'm also, you know, in the ones and zeros. And so I have learned the value of of bringing on the right people. Um, and that's, that's from the positive side of things where I've brought on the right people and still have the right people. In fact, there's, you know, a handful of people who work uh, on the team today who've been here since day one, Hmm. um, which is really cool. Um, our, our, my solutions architect, Andrew plan, he's fantastic, a great human being, a great developer. Um, and he, he's been here. He was higher number three. Um, and, and so, um, hiring great people. Also, from the other side of hiring not so great people, either mm. you know, either toxic to the culture, people that are right. coming in trying to weasel their way into creating division in the team, 
um, which is really critical uh, to make not happen, to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, and then also people that just that really couldn't do the job, like they said they could do the job. Hmm. Um, and you know, I've really learned the value of hiring the right people, which translates to to me hiring slow and firing fast. Right. Um, so you know, taking your time and finding the right people, looking for not only people with the skills but people with the the grit um you know the startup mentality the um the bonding with what we're doing here with with what solution we're trying to create um and and they have the skills yes but uh i had a couple of of individuals that just didn't work out for the team and mm-hmm. uh, they were um great developers uh, one of them in particular was a senior uh developer and and um, you know, from a team culture standpoint, they were they were a blocker. So hmm. um, I've learned how important that is uh, from from the people side. How important the right team is. Yeah, totally. That's uh, something that I anticipate most people don't really think about too much when they first get into things. Is like, uh, well, I guess hiring, but but mostly firing. I think that's the uncomfortable thing that a lot of people would love to stay away from. I think I think most people anyway. Um, do you have any recommendations on like uh, how to think about that side of business? Um, you know, if you have to let someone go, uh, the right kind of mindset to go into it with or approach, like I guess for yourself and also to make it something that doesn't really, really suck for the person being let go. Is it anything you've come across that's worked well? Sure, that's a, that's a really good way. That's a really good way to ask that question. Um, and because you want to be honoring to the people that you've brought on to the company, yeah. even when you got to let them go, you know, we're all people still, I think prior to making the decision to let someone go, I think you have to make sure as a manager that you're defining things well, that you're, that they make sure they know what they're supposed to do and they're being enabled to do it. Uh, mm. So you got to do everything that you can do to give them the right training, to give them the right autonomy or not at autonomy if they need, you know, more specific guidance, um, you know, give them what they need to succeed. If at that point you've done everything you can do and the team has done everything you do and the decision that, okay, this person just really isn't fitting. I think that doing all you can as a manager or as a, you know, maybe connected individual to help them in their next step, right? Here's the feedback of why this isn't working and be honest, you know, it's never fun for people to hear, um, where they, where they are, where there are opportunities to grow, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the, and, and, you know, some may say weaknesses, some may say, you know, things like that, things that didn't work out here, but where are the opportunities to grow? It's never a, a, um, I wouldn't say untense or not tense uh, conversation, right? Um, but then, you know, however you can help them on their next, you know, role, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like, okay, you're a web developer and, I'm, and I, I have to let you go because it's not working out. But I know you have these skills. You know, I could connect you with this person and this person and this person who I know is hiring and is my peer. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that'll work out. Um, you know, I, ultimately it's up to the, the person who's being let go. But again, enabling them to succeed even as they go out the door, I think is really important and, and just really helpful as a, as a professional, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's wise. I think, you know, giving them some resources that, uh, you know, would, would be helpful 
to them would be would be a great way to to do it. I I've never had this I've never had to go through this experience myself, fortunately. And I'm um, you know I'm hopeful that it, I, I uh, if I do run into those experiences that they they are positive. But I know <laughs> that you should probably plan for the worst at some points that it might <laughs> might not go super well. Which um, which makes me think of like in in your journey with variable, what what else? Ha, well, maybe not what else, but what hasn't gone well? Have there been things that have not really turned out the way you wanted them to? Been blockers to business? Uh, things that have kept you up at night, or or had you worried about the business itself? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, there's so many things, <laughs> in the start, and, and you know, I relate those to issues and mistakes and things. And in a startup, there's I mean, you're up to your elbows and issues all day long. Um, as you get established, those less and those become less and less, but there's two things that come to mind. One, we started out, um, as a business focusing a lot on the supply side, which is the worker side of our platform and thinking that they were going to be the ones that were more difficult to, uh, keep attracted to the platform. Right. So mm -hmm. we really put a lot of time into making sure we were getting them. We thought the businesses were going to be a slam dunk. Um, and what we found out was actually the reverse. The, the workers were really easy, really easy is, is relative, but um, less difficult to get on the platform and, um, and keep uh, engaged in the platform. The businesses, we had to do a lot of educating. We still, still are trying to figure out the best formula to do this today. We're, we're definitely much further along than we were you know, a few years ago, but mm. um, we're still trying to figure out how's the best way to educate businesses on this third labor paradigm, you know, full-time labor, temp staffing, which is short-time, full-time labor, um, and then on-demand labor for your demand spikes and falls and things like that. Um, so we have to do a lot of education to help people in an older industry think differently about how they do things. Um, we didn't anticipate that, that it was going to be like that. So still trying to figure that out. Um, exactly the best way to do it. Looking for that magic button, like I was talking earlier. Um, haven't found it yet. <laughs> uh, so still working for, for every every account there. Um, and then two, from a technology standpoint, there was a, there was a couple of months span in that first year um, where we were working a lot of hours um, because the, we had let the product, um, we had let the product sort of get out, I'm gonna say out of control, but immature uh, mm -hmm. un underneath our fingertips, so to speak. We, you know, some of those individuals that I mentioned earlier that I had to let go, um, they, you know, weren't cutting the mustard and we were giving them a lot of autonomy mm -hmm. um, and we were giving them the ability to go solve problems by themselves. But one of the mistakes I made was not kind of keeping my finger on the pulse and the quality of the work uh, right. for that specific individual um, early on. And we got to the point where, it just, the, the product was very immature and, and very buggy. And mm -hmm. so we had to spend a lot of hours and not just, you know, that person or not just me and that person, but the entire team basically having to make up for the mistakes of this one individual. And, you know, it was, it was difficult. It was really hard. Um, it was a really hard lesson to learn. Uh, some really good things came out of it. Uh, team culture, team bonding, yeah. Um, you know, the people that, that stuck around in that were, um, you know, bonded together, forged together, uh, which is really great. <laughs> but I definitely learned a hard lesson there of making sure to keep a pulse on the quality of the tight core product you're trying to yeah. build. Um, and, and it's, it's paramount and you have to do that as, as a manager and, and 
And I am a big believer in giving developers autonomy um, and hiring the right people that can function well in autonomy. Um, but that was not one of those hires. Hmm. Gotcha. So, the, and that's that's a topic that's really big, I think, when especially if you're talking about your role as a CTO or as like a lead, is um, giving autonomy while also still ensuring the quality of, of the product, as you say. Um, and I'm curious about like what are some ways that because you you know especially as tech teams grow in size and, and your team is already pretty sizable, like you can't really have like you can't get in deep to like absolutely everything that's being uh, that's going on every line of code that's being written what do you do to like make sure that quality is upheld now like do you have any kind of um processes in place that uh give you confidence as a cto like that things are going well sure that's a that's a great question you know just like the magic buttons i don't think there's a magic process either i think that you know we do the normal things we do our teams broken down into front end back end uh mobile we do prs team prs we review each other's code we really try to focus on building um to follow paradigms so that code handoff is easier and onboarding is much easier so all those things are are good to manage technical quality um you know we um we ensure or I ensure that all designs kind of go through um, me and one other uh, developers um, sort of eye, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that the quality is upheld there. Um, but there's not a silver bullet metric. And honestly, I feel like the, the best thing that we've done here that has ensured quality is the people, is hiring mm-hmm. the right people. Um, yeah. The people that we have on the team, on our team, not only you know are great people and they have integrity, um, they're also just really smart um, and they care about what we're doing. So they come in and because they are the people that function well in an autonomous environment, they're going to come in and they're going to take on their piece as their own baby, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to take care of it like their own baby. So I, you know, my leads and uh, my leads are definitely like this. And a lot of the team is like this too, but digging into like, how can we do things better? Not because I asked, but because they are excited about what they do. Um, You know, they want to, they want to make the product better. They want to build in, you know, new paradigms that they think are going to help. Not just to build mm-hmm. new paradigms or try new tools because that's the new new thing to do. But this, uh, you know, this that I'm proposing as a developer is going to help us further. So um, I think the most important thing, again, it goes back to the the types of people that you that you hire. And that's that's going to make you move fastest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What what then do you do when you're hiring to mm-hmm. screen for that? Because that, that's got to be one of the trickiest parts of this whole thing is like, you can only know so much about a person when you when you're sitting down with them to hire them for a job, right? Like you can't really know. And I mean, there's all these things you can you can talk about like the past behavior is the best predictor of future success or whatever, however that that statement goes. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, I mean, like it's it's got to it's got to be difficult. Uh, so what's yeah like what what do you look for? How do you how do you think about the hiring process? I guess. Sure. So the process we go through from an interview standpoint, we do a, a screen essentially um, with either myself or my leads. Uh, we do an on-site interview that goes through all of our business counterparts, and then we do a problem-solving session with um, within the tech team. So it's not necessarily like a a technical interview. But it's like, hey, we have this problem, these types of problems that we solve here today. Let's all of us get on the whiteboard and just talk about how we would solve it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we may throw some wrenches into it and stuff like that. Um, what we've found um, 
is that that's really valuable because it's not just like, can you solve the problem mm-hmm. that a lot of people come in and, and can solve the problems. Um, but how do you solve the problem with the team? So with mm. the people that are here asking you questions or challenging how you solve that problem, how do you respond to that? You know, or, or, you know, do you, do you, you know, are you open to new ideas? Are you open to, you know, thinking about it in different ways? Also interviewing with our business counterparts, it gives them those individuals the opportunity to sort of see how it's going to feel to work with a certain person, uh, bringing them requirements essentially, you know, mm-hmm. like our, um, chief supply officer or our VP of product, you know, they're going to come to them and say, Hey, I need this thing built because the market is telling me we need to build this. Yeah. Um, how is it going to be working with that person? Um, so those, those things are helpful. Um, I de- definitely feel like the problem solving part of it is very, um, strategically important for team sort of uh, fit if that makes sense mm-hmm. from a tech tech team standpoint. But all that being said, um, you don't know. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's a little bit of a, of, of a, a gut feel there, um, where you take a risk and you know, if it doesn't work out then you have to, you have to try to fire fast there. Um, I will say what's also helpful too, and this is part of the hiring the right people. Um, and the autonomy is like letting the team take the ownership and the decision too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, sort of having a unanimous vote or, um, ensuring that, uh, people's concerns are heard, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and addressed, um, and noted, which I think is really important. So typically if we don't have kind of a thumbs up from, uh, all of the leads and, and myself and the internal team, then there's something there that we need to either explore further or mm-hmm. that is a, if it's a, maybe it's probably a no, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense for sure. Well, that's really cool. I, so yeah, we should, we should probably start wrapping up soon, but one thing that I was hoping we could uh, maybe chat about as we do wrap up is what would you recommend for people who are wanting to get into like a startup? So, you know, we talked about maybe thinking about leaving corporate America for your own thing. Uh, but specifically, I suppose, if you're going to embark on a product company, what would you recommend that people do as they, um, as they start that, as they, you know, we could, we could talk about like starting slow, starting on the side, what have you, but what, what would you recommend that people, um, do to, to be thinking about a, a product company and starting one up? Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head and I think that's what I would, what I would say is if you believe in what you're, if you believe in something and you want to build it and you want to give it a shot, um, spend your nights and weekends first to build it, um, to make it happen, uh, and then get that product in front of people and get feedback. Uh, I think that's the best thing to do. Don't, you know, don't go out and try to get funding on an idea. Uh, don't try to, don't, don't try to build a team on an idea. Um, which, you know, part of that is true. You're, you're, you are kind of building a team and getting funding on ideas, but, but go build it. Um, back to what I was saying earlier, just people jumping out and doing stuff like there's so many resources out there that you can just grab a hold of, um, Mm. and just give things a shot with little to no cost at all. Um, and if you've got the resources to be able to build something, whether it be software, or maybe, maybe product based too, and I'm, I'm not super familiar with that world, but if you've got the resources to do that sort of thing too, um, like physical product, um, 
then go go do it and give it a shot get feedback and then take it from there and if you feel like there's a big enough opportunity then go after it mm-hmm. awesome man well that's really cool uh i think people will definitely take that to heart so thank you for sharing all of this uh this advice that you have um where can people find you online let's uh maybe link up your twitter uh and we can send people wherever else that you figure it would be a good spot cool um yeah so i'm i'm actually not on twitter so i'm i'm, okay. the, I'm the i'm the guy that's only on linkedin uh, gotcha. so you, can, you can grab me on LinkedIn uh, under Noah Laphart. Um, you can check m- out more about me at noahlaphart.com. Cool. Um, and then variable at variableops.com. Variableops.com. Cool. We'll put all of that um, into the show notes as well. Uh, well, Noah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for chatting today. I uh, look forward to hearing how Variable does and uh, all this, wish you all the success in the future. Um, so, yeah, thanks for taking some time today, and we'll chat with you soon. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Quarter podcast today. This has been episode 35 with Noah Labhart. You can find all the links that Noah mentioned in the show notes at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe or leave a rating and review. You can go to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe to do just that. And check us out on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash coderpodcast. money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big.